Do you love birds? So does National Geographic. Now you can get your hands on the most up-to-date and comprehensive book of North American birds with National Geographic's Complete Birds of North America. This extensive reference is completely updated and includes maps, beautiful photographs, and more than 1,000 species. It's a must-have for all birders, and it really is the biggest and best bird book ever with 752 pages. It covers every bird one might see in the continental United States and Canada. Buy it for yourself or a fellow bird lover today. Available wherever books are sold. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. By the time you get this episode on your podcast folder or app or however you listen to it, I will be on my way to Kansas for the Lectrex Prairie Chicken Festival. I'm excited. It's not often that I have a lifer just sitting there waiting for me to intersect with it like I do this weekend. Lesser Prairie Chicken, lesser in name, but not an impression. It will also be my first real trip to any sort of grouse lack. I've never had that experience before. All of my grouse experience heretofore uh, were of random flushing birds, or in the case of a spruce grouse, you know, just walking across a trail in Alaska, as if there you know, wasn't a bunch of people in a grizzly bear 300 meters away. Grouse are weird. So if you will be there in Kansas, let me know. Say hi. The novelty of being around lots of birders for the first time in two years is Almost as exciting as the birds, which is relevant to the talk that I'm giving. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which the hobby of birding encourages behaviors that are beneficial to your life outside of birding. You might be asking, Nate, what does a life outside of birding even look like? You might have forgotten. You're listening to a birding podcast right now, so I imagine that you're pretty deep into it. But all of us have you know, either non-birding interests or just a general awareness of the world around us. And I contend that birding helps us navigate that world, not only because it gives us a sense of community or a reason to move around outside, but also because of characteristics like honesty, skepticism, curiosity, humility, all that, all that good stuff that contributes to a well-rounded individual or a life well-lived. Anyway, that's what I'll be talking about. It's a talk I've given before, but I have reworked it post-pandemic. The last two years have really shed quite a lot of light on all that stuff. It's It's been something, it's been really something else to see people who are not birders pre-pandemic come to it and start writing thoughtful pieces about how they're seeing the things that I, we, have been seeing about birding for, for years. And hey, if you want that tuck at your own festival, I'm available. On the show this week, we've got another edition of Random Birds with my colleague Ted Floyd. We talk about oh, whatever birds the random number generator tells us to talk about. So let's remember some birds right after this week's Rare Ones. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first part of April 2022. There's a definite theme for the birds this week. Both are first state records and both are some wandering individuals. For starters, to Maryland, which has the distinction of being the first state or province in the ABA area to record two new birds in the year 2022. Both of them are gulls. They had Slady back to the beginning of the year, followed this week by a bird that will be no surprise to those who have been following rare birds for the last couple years, a Hearman's Gull in Baltimore County. Interestingly, this is not the same individual that has been cruising up and down the coast between Massachusetts and Georgia for the last few months. That bird is an adult. This bird is immature and is most likely the young bird that has been spending most of the winter in eastern Virginia. So two Hearman's goals on the East Coast these days now both represent multi-state records. And up to New York, where an apparent zone-tailed hawk was photographed in Brooklyn. On the surface, this is an extraordinary record, but digging deeper, well, it's still extraordinary. But there is a pattern here. Back in 2015, what was presumably a single zone-tailed hawk was seen over the course of a week between Connecticut and Virginia, heading southward. Notably, that bird was not seen in New York. I'm not suggesting that this individual is that one, but a bird in Maryland last year was that state's first and very well could be this New York bird making a similar circuit. That's all this week. For the full accounting, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org RBA. You can also follow along with the Rare Bird News in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. Every once in a while here on the ABA podcast, we like to pull out the list of birds and the random number generator for a segment 
we, and, and by we, I guess I mean I, call Random Birds. And my guest for this segment is, as always, my colleague here at the ABA, birding editor and current, can I say, author of the next edition of the National Geographic Field Guide we're, to we're, Birds of, of North America or ABA area. Or not exactly, but we're, I'm working on a, an East Guide. An East Guide, yeah. right on. Okay, now I understand. Well, you know, you know. Who, who better to talk about birds than with uh, my, my colleague, Ted Floyd? Hi, Ted. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Well, we're sitting here in the middle of March. Um, you know, meteorological, meteorologically, it is the beginning of spring. Uh, the clocks have just tipped over. I don't know about you, but uh, spring is really starting to, to, to happen here. I guess spring has a little more obvious, uh, obvious things going on uh, here in North Carolina than they do in Colorado. Is it spring there yet, or is it just sort of no, not through? not really. We're still sort of on that uh, Pacific Ocean lag here. Uh, spring just comes a lot later to uh, to Colorado than it yeah. does to to North Carolina. So we had a pretty decent snow a couple of days ago. It looks like we'll have yeah. another one in a few more days. But um, a few birds are starting to uh, to show up. I, so I live up in the sort of colder, more northeastern part of mm-hmm, the state. But right. on a, just a yeah, drive back from the airport this morning, I saw a uh, lake full of American white pelicans, and that's one mm. of our sort of first you know signs of spring here. The uh, the killdeer, which I realize well, probably never left anywhere in North Carolina, but but even at this yeah. latitude farther north uh, in the east, you know, probably have been back for you know well over a month now, and they're just starting to show up again here. So with the killdeer are back, the uh, the um the pelicans uh, just just got back the morning doves are singing mm-hmm. um the sandhill crane migration is spectacular right now uh, mountain bluebirds have been back for more than a month so it's a, it's well, a birds slow... we've talked about in random birds before there you I go think. but it's, it's a, 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 sl- a, a slow trickle but um it's it's still winter here <laughs> oh well i mean it's 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 really spring here uh the temperature is creeping up into the the high 50s low 60s fahrenheit it's actually really really pleasant uh, trees are starting to leaf out. Everything is singing. The house finches in my neighborhood are once again building a nest underneath the eaves of my front porch. Yep. Uh, I was out walking just because I had a little time this morning at a at a local park, and I came across a Cooper's hawk active nest. So things are um, th- things are really happening down here. Everything's singing. Uh, the yellow rumped warblers are starting to look very nice and getting uh, very active as they start to think about heading out. Uh, ruby ruby crown kinglets singing their heads off. Lots, lots of things happening here. It's definitely, definitely spring, even though it will be another six weeks or so before like the real, sure. you know, push of neotropic migrants really start coming through. I mentioned being at the airport um, or being on the way home from the airport earlier. Um, I didn't say why though. I, I was dropping off a, a kid at the airport who is on her way to, um, New Jersey for woodcocks uh, right oh, now. Wow, so, just so we, don't, we, don't, we, we don't have anything like that in, in Colorado. Yeah. yeah the, the, the spring flight of the, the woodcock is just, the stuff of dreams, I guess, for a Colorado kid who's never seen a woodcock. So, anyhow, she's on her way to New Jersey. Northeast. They, yeah. they, 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 they um, from what I understand, like they're just woodcocks all over the place up yep. in uh, up in New Jersey, New York area. Um, they're a little they, harder to come by where I am. Tomorrow but. is the first day of spring break, and she's uh, going to be looking at woodcocks for spring oh, break. Who, who wouldn't, who wouldn't love to spring their, I went to, their yeah, spring break? I, I get that, but still, I just think there's something really cool about somebody from the Colorado Rockies going to, I'm sorry, New Jersey. I love New Jersey. I lived in New Jersey, but she's going to New Jersey to look for woodcocks. Yeah. And those, in the weird kind of March doldrums pre, pre-migration, yep. uh, um, you know, everyone's excited for it, but it's still many weeks off. Yeah. I know that's the sort of thing we deal with here in the East. Yep. Um, well, let, let's, let's talk about some, some birds on our list, Ted, yep. for people who are not familiar with uh, the random birds conceit. Uh, I have made a list of all the species that um, can be found in North Carolina and Colorado. So all the species that are shared on the two lists of the states that Ted and I live in. Um, It's about 380 odd species minus about 12 of the birds that we've talked about in these segments before. Uh, So we still got a long way to go before we reach the, the bottom of this list. Um, but I've got a random number generator and every bird is assigned a number. So we'll just hit the random number generator and see where it takes us and, and just talk, talk some birds. Let's remember some birds, Ted. Let's do it. All right. Well, let's, uh, pull up the random number generator and hit it and see what it says. It's 352. Oh, so we're going very, very down end. to the we're bottom. Be in the warblers or somewhere. I we guess. are in the warblers. Yeah. It's common yellowthroat. Oh, what cool. a great bird to talk about in early spring because this, it's a year-round year resident where I live and, um, you know, they start singing pretty early. 
well, it's not a year-round resident <laughs> where I live. Mm. Um, it's still quite some time before the uh, yellow throats will be back, uh, even to the southern part of Colorado, sort of right around uh, May first. And um, they um, they don't start singing right away here. They just sort of uh, lurk about in the underbrush and make that little sound yeah, uh, yeah. That, that that they do. And then the full-on singing gets underway, sort of by around the uh, the end of uh, end of May. It's a um, so to back up here, as I as I briefly said, it's a warbler, um, mm-hmm. and it's a uh, I think in one of the uh, earlier uh, Peterson field guides, it's on a page called Aberrant Warblers. So it's like aberrant. Were, it's oh, really like the so water cool. thrushes and yeah. what was at the time, the yellow-breasted chat was at the time considered a warbler. So it, it is a little different. I mean, it's structured more like a wren. It's a bird with this uh, long tail, quite short wings for a warbler, very long, sturdy legs, um, kind of a powerful bill. And uh, it more often than not lurks around in the sort of places where like a marsh wren would occur, you know, so yeah. like cattail marshes it often feeds on the ground or, or near the ground. Uh, however, it's a more brightly colored than any American uh, ABA area wren of uh, just a, a, as its name suggests, it has a bright yellow throat and also this uh, striking black uh, patch on the face and a uh, sort of blue over the eye. It's, it's a, it's a stunning bird. Um, can be surprisingly hard to see, but uh, that mm-hmm. witchety, witchety, witchety is a uh, one of the most common so- sounds in, in Colorado for you know three or four months of the year. But we yeah. are still a solid month and a half away from wow. the first <laughs> yellow throats. I say they're a year-round resident. I'm talking about and the state as a whole, uh, as as you know. Uh, we have many wintering warblers in the southeast, uh, birds that sort of linger around, especially towards the coast, and uh, common yellowthroat is one of those birds. Um, you can find them in the winter along the coast. They respond really well to pishing right, that time of yeah. year, so they'll just pop right up, and you can frequently get real nice looks at them. Um, it'll be a little while before they show up, you know, in the willow groves and stuff uh, where I am here, in the kind of marshy, wet meadows sort of places that they, they like to be found as well. Like, as, as with you, it's almost always around water. Um, I always associate them with a with a wet meadow a nearby stream or a marsh or a pond or something. They're almost always within you know a hundred meters of of some sort of wet habitat. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, but what, definitely one of my favorite birds. Uh, I remember when I first saw common yellowthroat. This was back when I was a young birder in Missouri. It's one of those sort of impossible looking birds you know one of those birds that can really get you going on birding i think if you get a really good look at this thing that kind of pops out of the reeds out of nowhere um yeah that i've got them nesting i've got them actually singing in a little uh power line cut uh that's a you know 100 200 meters away from my front door it's always a nice thing to to see in the spring they they nest back in there i've never seen them nest but i hear them singing almost all the time i can hear them from my backyard you mentioned pishing and um in my experience the common yellow throat is the most easily pitched bird in the world. I mean, <laughs> if, 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 this is actually a it's kind on of like the short a, list for sure. <laughs> yeah, but it's like sort of almost like a tip for Christmas bird counting. You know, if you think you've got so common yellow, it's a really good bird for us in winter. I would think and, so. And, yeah. and if you give it that, and if it doesn't pop up, whatever's in there is not a yellow. Not throat. A yellow throat. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're so responsive um, yeah. to pitching. Just one other thing I would say about the yellow throat is that. Um, it has a little appreciated and really kind of a powerful and evocative uh, flight song that it often gives it like hmm. in the middle of the night. Um, huh. So you can go to um, like a cattail marshes in Colorado at like 1 a.m. if there's a full moon in June. And it's it, you, it starts off with that witchety, 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 but then it goes into this sort of fluttery, tuneful, weird kind of oven bird-like <laughs> utterance. And they, they, they give that um, at night um, in flight sometimes under the moon. Huh. That's really interesting. Um. Uh, one of the things that, I, you know, in a, in a field guide, they've always, the witchety, witchety, witchety is the mnemonic <laughs> yeah, that people right. give to them. But to my ear, like, it's never fit for that. It's more of like a to witch it, to witch it, to witch it than a witch. I realize that's like, where do you draw the line yeah. on where the where the song starts and stops? But to me, it's a uh, to witch it, to witch it, to witch it, rather than a witchety, witchety, witchety. Likewise, and, you know, when you uh, you look at the spectrogram, what you so often find is that, you know, something that sounds like three notes, whether it's to witch it or witchety, is actually mm-hmm. like four or five. So, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, the bird yeah. song is a little more complicated than witchety or to witch it. But, you know, that's how our ears hear it. It's just that yeah. pounding, repetitious, you know, yeah. to my yeah, yeah, tripartite, yeah. Um, uh, just, you know, sort of pulsing song is one of the great sounds of summer. So, uh, common yellowthroat is one of those species that has, you know, a bunch of kind of interesting subspecies across the yeah. uh, the range of of North America and you know into Mexico and Central America as well. Where there are other mm-hmm. kind of equally cool yellowthroats to be found uh, the further south you go. 
Um, does their song vary? I, I'm just I'm mostly familiar with Birding in the East. I'm mostly familiar with yeah, my I, common um, yellow throats. So, so. I should just really say I don't know and leave it at that. Yeah, that yeah, the I'm safest thing so, to, yeah. to say. Um, I would say that, um, except when we're dealing with you know the really interesting geographic variation in the southwestern U.S. and northwestern mm-hmm. Mexico. They sound the same to me. <laughs> I, really? I, I, okay. I, yeah, I, I mean, a, a yellow throat in Colorado, kind of like a song sparrow in Colorado, to me sounds like a mm. yellow throat in New Jersey, and and vice mm. versa. Um, so I'm not aware of that, but uh, as usual, if a listener <laughs> yeah. is, uh, knows something to the Let contrary, drop it in the comments or something. I uh, would not uh, count out any of those sort of California birders having right. you know something slightly different because yeah. there's so much about California that is kind of slightly different, especially with sure. their their subspecies of wide ranging North American birds. Yep. Um, yeah. All right. So have we exhausted the common yellow? Oh, I don't know if we've exhausted the common yellow. <laughs> There's much to say about it. You know, an old name for the common yellow throat was the Maryland yellow throat. And I'm sort of oh, okay. sad we lost that name. It's just sort of more, I don't know, special sounding than the common yellow throat. Yeah, but, I, know. No. I know. But no, I it, 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 it's a great bird. And it's one of just, as you said, Nate, one of our most widespread and familiar and common birds. But it's also just one of those birds that whether you're seeing it for the first time or in our yeah. case, you know, the thousandth time or more, it, it's eye popping. You really, Oh, do. I always love yeah. to get a good look at yeah, a common you, yellow throat. Yeah. You, always, always. Um, yeah, this, here's a, here's another story. I, um, last, last year, pandemic year, I was not traveling all that much. And, um, I was doing a lot of birding in the, in the area behind my house. And so I'd walk back in that power line cut and I'd hear the, the yellow throat singing. And I, my kids were with me, um, one of this time. And actually I heard the, heard the birds singing and, um, I, I pitched a little bit to see if I could get it to respond. And the thing like just came in like a bullet, like <laughs> right into this bush real close to me. And like my kids got it, like an eyeful of this uh, common yellow throat, which they were very impressed by, um, as they should be. I mean, I'm always impressed whenever I see a common yellow throat. I love that. It would be a good potential ABA bird of the year. <laughs> out there you heard it here first <laughs> i'm just i'm not <laughs> predicting anything we haven't decided the 2023 but it's just okay. it seems like it would be a good bird right. anyway um right, let's hit the hit the generator and see what we got here okay 308 so we're staying relatively close oh this is a bird i saw this morning that are um starting to, to head out in numbers uh white-throated sparrow Ooh. old sam peabody himself yeah, so another uh, widespread bird, sort of more eastern and northern than western, although white-throated sparrows uh, can be found all across the ABA area, except for in, in uh, Hawaii. Um, it's almost unique among North American passerines or songbirds for being polymorphic. So when mm, we have polymorphic mm-hmm. birds like Jaegers and hawks and snow geese, those are non-passerines, but they're two morphs of the white-throated sparrow, the uh the black and white, or sometimes just the bright or, or white morph, and then the brown and tan or dull morph. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the genetics of that are just extraordinary. So it's, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's just a color. You know, that's that's all it is. And yet, um, I, I if uh, Nick Miner's listening in on this, maybe he can straighten this out here. But I know that, like, the amount of the genome that's devoted to expressing that color is, like, a third of the whole genome, which is absurd that like it takes so much of the genome just to express that color, but it's related to all sorts of cool behavior. So it's what we call balanced polymorphism. The, um, the number of black and white and brown and tan birds in the population are always the same because of, um, reverse assortative mating so the black and white birds mate with the brown and tan ones and vice versa yeah. even though the black and white ones are like socially dominant to the um right. brown and tan ones so it, it's really really yeah. fascinating and people people assume that it's like a male female thing but it isn't there's no. equal numbers of male black and white birds yeah. and equal numbers of tan and yellow birds and but they always find each other it's always right. a black and white and a tan and yellow yep. assorted with the sexes and, and that's what yeah, and that's what keeps it um in balance another really cool thing about the uh, white-throated sparrow which was just um published just a few years maybe like a year or two ago is that uh they've um basically like invented a new song in just oh, yeah. the, uh, the past like five or six years and we know where that song originated and how it sort of spread across the aba area and it's um you, you, you did you say old sam peabody at the beginning old sam peabody yeah, i mean everyone has their own little right, mnemonic right but that. like yeah. there's like there's so it was like Sweet Canada and Oh Sam or wait Oh Canada and Sweet but Old Sam Sweet Peabody. Canada but, Old but, Sam but but, but now there's like a third song and like you know the, the field guides of the future are going to have to mention this because it has swept across the uh, the whole white-throated yeah. sparrow population and I actually um 
was just going through some recent recordings of mine, um, including one uh, from Central Park in uh, 2019 in November. I think it was November 29th, 2019. And by golly, that new song is in there. So th- there's a white throat huh. sparrow in Central Park that is singing the brand new song. So it's just so cool that the the bird whose song is so well known, Old Sam, Old Sam Peabody in O Canada, now has a third song that has pretty much spread throughout the entire population of uh, very widespread white throated sparrows. Yeah, it's like if some slang term pops up in Southern California, and then after like three or four years, suddenly every all the kids in you know in Kentucky or in Indiana are using it just the same. Yeah. So, um, just a biological note: the um, the word meme, which we all know like mm-hmm. in the internet context now, was actually coined by the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins in 1976 to describe the behavioral transmission of information, including novel information in population. Mm-hmm. So what the white-throated sparrows are doing is absolutely a meme in the yeah. biological context and the um, sort of a borrowing of that term in a more like a human social context is like it's just so perfect because it describes it so perfectly. But yeah, yeah, that word meme is actually from the biological literature in the 1970s. The uh, the new white-throated sparrow song is equivalent to, um, uh, I don't know, what's what's a hip meme these days? Yeah, I'm... <laughs> I'm too old for this, uh, for that sort of culture anyway. So, um, yeah, that's really cool. White-throated sparrows. Um, I, I saw a bunch of them this morning. Um, they hang around remarkably late. Uh, you know, it's a boreal nesting bird, but here in the Southeast, we've got them until almost until June. I don't know whether those are sort of non-breeding first year birds that kind of linger in the, in the South. Um, but yeah, I've seen them, I've seen them, you know, as late as like the second week of June before, um, there, there are a bunch of them around, and they're they're making a ton of noise right now in my backyard. <laughs> and um, I've seen several estimates over the decades uh, to the effect that the white-throated sparrow is one of the most abundant birds. Like, yeah, I would hemisphere. believe it. It, it yeah. seems like I never see one. It's always fifteen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they hmm. uh, they occupy a vast breeding range, and mm-hmm. uh, they're from what I gather, I have very little experience with that breeding range, but they're they're dense throughout it. That's so funny that we we think of it. You know, white-throated sparrow is easily one of the most familiar species, certainly in the east and in the central part of the continent, as a feeder bird throughout the winter. And yet, you know, in the summer, it basically disappears into the Canadian boreal, yeah. and you you know, no one sees them, no one <laughs> really knows where they go. There's not a ton of information about them just because the place is so hard to get to. Um, and yet, here it is, maybe the most abundant bird on the continent. We have no idea. It's an you can make an argument of it. I should say just briefly on the Colorado versus North Carolina uh, no, business that it's, like. a, um, it's an uncommon, you know, bird fall through spring yeah. in Colorado, especially in the uh, eastern part of the state. There's been one at a feeder near my house all winter long, and that's that's sort of typical. You know, you, it, it's not a it's not impossible to find, but the uh, the white-throated sparrow, you know, it can, it can be like the best bird of a Christmas count or something hmm. um, like that. So it's not you know it's not it's not a mega by any means. I wouldn't even call it it's not casual. It's, it's, it's a regular, you know, but rare, um, fall migrant, a uh, winter and, and, you know, spring migrant also. It is a species that causes no amount of no shortage of headaches for a great, you know, great backyard bird count, mm. uh, because, uh, it has a white crown. And so people frequently <laughs> report white throated sparrows, especially when you've ta- where, you know, we're talking about the black and white and the tan and yellow ones. Um, they'll report the tan and yellow ones as white-throated sparrows, and they'll report the black and white ones as white crown sparrows because they yeah. do have a pretty, pretty prominent and, and white even, crown. Um, you know, there's so much winter variation in, mm-hmm. like the um, the, the the duller, often like the immature yeah. tan and yeah. brown white-throated sparrows. They can do, actually. I think we may have even had this you and me on um, what's this bird live once? It was like a mm-hmm. it was like a swamp sparrow that oh sure yeah looked that's like a, a white-throated sparrow or vice versa right. because mm-hmm. I mean some. It's an underrated. You know, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, different genera, yeah. and I mean, they sound very different. And most mm-hmm. of the year, you would not confuse a swamp sparrow with a white-throated sparrow. But some of those um, weird, kind of mushy, rufescent, just you know, ground-loving yeah. sparrows with a lot of white on the throat, and the you quickly go to swamp sparrow on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's hit the uh, let's hit the random number generator and see if it uh, two ten. So. Okay. In the middle uh, somewhere? Flycatchers, yeah. I'll guess. Or... No, close, though. It's okay. a hairy woodpecker. Another, okay. Another bird I had this morning. 
Yeah, so the, the hairy woodpeckers. Oh boy, we're really going for the globally distributed or the, sorry, yeah, the continentally distributed birds today. Yeah, range one. That's good. The, the hairy woodpecker is very widely distributed across the AB area and also well south into the tropics, um, as into middle America. I know that's um, people, a lot of people don't realize. Well. I don't think I realize that. So, you know, the the uh, the hairy woodpecker is sort of the uh, bigger and louder and wilder version of the uh, very familiar downy woodpecker. It was. It's formerly in the genus Pycoides, and I think it's Dryobates. I may have that wrong. So it's been reassigned right. um, yeah. along with the uh, the downy woodpecker. But it's basically your sort of medium-sized black and white woodpecker, um, and just sort of like a, an amped-up or souped-up version of the downy woodpecker. In Colorado, um, it's not as sort of diverse in its habitat preferences as it is in, in North Carolina. It really likes mountain pine forests and especially burned forests hmm. and uh it's something that i think uh you know a lot of colorado birders or especially visitors to colorado will go to burns to look for american three-toed woodpeckers and they are in burns but the bird that is just really partial to burns is hairy huh. woodpeckers yeah that's so you'll, you'll you'll be birding along and oh is, is that a three oh it's a hairy oh that's a hairy <laughs> I mean, you can get a lot of hairy woodpeckers huh. in burns before you get a um a three-toed woodpecker and i'll also say this is a i know this is hairy woodpecker but i'm talking about three-toed woodpeckers the Interior West, so the Rocky Mountain subspecies of the American three-toed woodpecker, is freakishly similar to the hairy wood. Sorry, female American three-toed woodpecker and female hairy woodpecker look almost the same. Really? And yeah, I know. It's yeah. like for, for an Eastern birder who's you know used to these much sort of better marked American three-toed woodpeckers, you would not guess that. But they look almost the same, except for a little bit of barring on the flanks of the wow. um, female American three-toed woodpeckers. I'm glad but, I don't have to deal with that. Yeah. So, <laughs> and you know, I do think there probably are some um, birds that were um, hairy woodpeckers that got reported as American three-toed woodpeckers yeah. or also underdetected, you know, birds yeah. that were dismissed as hairy woodpeckers that actually yeah. were female female American three-toed woodpeckers, mm. but I, you know, I, they're not too common here. I went back yeah. to the woodpecker. Um, I love that really, really sharp, um, bleak call. Yeah. It's that, always a surprise. Almost. Yeah. And on the, uh, totally random trivia note, um, a spectrogram of the pleak of a, um, Harry Woodpecker and the pleak of a red phalarope are indistinguishable. We, you cannot tell them apart. Oh man, how would you be able to find a red phalarope in a burned over forest? You'd right. never be or, able to or, hear it. Or a hairy woodpecker 50 miles out at sea. But, <laughs> right. Right, yeah. but yeah, and no, they're, the common call of the red phalarope and the hairy woodpecker are essentially the same. Wow. Well, that is really interesting and very random piece. Yeah. Very ra- random piece for random birds. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hairy woodpecker is. Um, it's probably the least common of the regular breeding woodpeckers where I live. Um, they tend to be more common in the mountains and less common on the coast. That's not an unco- that's a pretty regular distributional thing for a lot of species. Um, and I, I mean, I had one this morning. I was kind of surprised by it because I usually see them in kind of larger forests, like more contiguous forest. And this was at a little park, like next to a shopping mall. Um, but yeah, you know, heard it first. Ended up seeing it later. Um, I usually see about 25 to 30 downy woodpeckers for every hairy woodpecker that I encounter around here. But, um, I always, always love to see them and especially to actually physically get eyes on, on that bird, because I I love the fact that the bill is so big and substantial on it. It's like a, like a, a normally proportioned downy woodpecker because downy woodpecker is so weirdly proportioned with a tiny little bill and a big head. Um, you know, hairy woodpecker just looks like a regular woodpecker, uh, like a woodpecker should. And um, <laughs> yeah, and another kind of cool thing that we see around here is that I always associate them with um, pileated woodpeckers. They sort of oh, have like okay. a big brother, little brother relationship. Mm. Um, if I see um, a pileated woodpecker, I'll frequently look around and, and find a hairy woodpecker kind of following it along. Um, and if I see a hairy woodpecker, I'll sometimes look around and there'll be a quiet pileated woodpecker kind of rooting around nearby. Um, I, I see them together more often than not, which is sort of sort of interesting. That's a problem I would love to have in Colorado, but we don't have <laughs> right. woodpeckers, so right. that problem doesn't exist for us. I will say, though, from sort of a, a semi-like uh, self-conscious Colorado perspective here for the uh, the rest of our listeners, um, is that just as I mentioned, the sort of three-toed woodpecker, hairy woodpecker confusion possibility. So with um, downy woodpeckers, especially in the more southern parts of Colorado, and especially when you get to New Mexico, uh, ladder-backed woodpecker despite mm-hmm. plumage differences, is really similar. I mean, they're about the same size and shape. They're in the same genus. They're actually thought to be very closely related to each other within that genus. And their calls are much more similar to huh. one another. I wonder than, why that um, is. It basically sounds like that dull pick or plick yeah. of the um, of the downy woodpecker. So, um, again, I mean, downy versus hairy, 
for sure. But in many ways, I'd say in Colorado, it's Harry versus American Three Toad and then Downey versus Ladderbacked. Yeah. Is that like a, like, is there like a sonic niche that is being filled by yeah. a bird that, you know, as that has a similar sounding or a different sounding call than it does in the West than it does in the East? Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, um, I assume that was a total like random conjecture by, by you right yeah. there. But yeah, I mean, um, and so my random response would be that I, we know from studies, oddly enough, of the genus Zonotrichia, so back to white-throated mm. sparrow, mm-hmm. that those sonic niches um, are a real thing. Oh, really? Um, okay. Now, that's with sparrows, not with woodpeckers. So Yeah, I, but I mean, it, it stands be. to reason that there could yep. be something to that. Yeah. Sure. Huh. That's wild. I wonder why, why, why would a sonic niche be important? I don't know. Yeah. Is there something about bird, the physiology of bird hearing that, that requires that? And if that niche is already taken, then, you know, they'll evolve into this slightly different call or maybe harry woodpeckers just really want to sound like red phalaropes maybe hey who knows there you go (laughs) (laughs) all right let's uh let's uh, hit the generator again and see uh see what we've got here Ooh, back to the top five number five number five so it's like a goose i guess it is a goose it's greater white fronted goose oh yeah speckle bellies i imagine you see a lot more of these than i do i don't know about that they have a very limited range in in colorado Hmm. they basically are uh restricted the very far eastern part of the state uh, where you can see flocks in the hundreds although not even that is sort of notable um so i live near denver and by the time you're this far west in colorado you're down to like ones like not even ones and twos like like seeing like like one that's right i'm I'm sorry i'm thinking more like Connecticut. i know you're north carolina i'm like i'm you're up in Connecticut or something like that. But yeah, they're actually one of the least common vagrant yeah, geese. Like right. I've seen more Ross's geese. Um, yeah. Than, no, than fair enough. Run. Yeah. So, um, so I believe that our um, and you have to deal with that whole Greenland goose problem. Of course, I guess. Not that well. I. I mean, oh, I oh. all the ones I've seen. Uh, I've probably seen greater white fronted goose in the state on about a half dozen occasions. Oh, okay. Um, they were all. They were all the. North American. Okay. Okay. Well, so, okay. And, and, as far and, as I know, that's yeah. the assumption in Colorado. Although, with yeah. recent records of pink-footed goose and barnacle goose from Colorado, maybe right. we should start thinking about Greenland, yeah. uh, greater white-fronted geese. But anyhow, it, it's a bird essentially of the um, the mid-continent. I mean, that's where mm-hmm. the, that. I, when I when I grew up in Missouri, um, we would see you know skeins of greater white-fronted geese right. flying over. Right. Um, it was a regular thing in the spring and fall. Yeah. So we we tend to see like one in a flock of maybe you know. 3,000 cackling geese and, you know, 300 mm-hmm. Canada geese and maybe some snow geese mixed in. They they usually, you know, show up um, or, or are prominent most of all by not their greater white front or their speckle bellies, but by their bright orange feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we say, I mean, sort of, it really works here, but if you have a big flock of geese in Colorado, look for the orange feet, make sure it's not a mallard because mallards can masquerade <laughs> okay. as greater white fronted geese. And if, yep. you know, if a goose pops up out of it, it's likely going to be, in fact, it's almost guaranteed to be a greater white fronted goose. So the other mid-sized to sort of largish geese we get a lot of immatures which don't have that white front at all mm-hmm. and also um they're vocal i mean sometimes even like mm. a, and they give that kind of funny like uh high often two or three note call that's quite different from the, just that kind of glumphing honking of a canada mm-hmm. goose or a cackling goose so often you you hear that sort of a higher multi-note cackle or, or honk from the the greater white front but it, it's just i mean it's a Kind of like white throat sparrow. That's a good comp, actually. It's not rare. It's not a mega. You yeah. know, you're not going to go out. You probably aren't going to go out of your way to see a greater white fronted goose. But it's typically like you see one, and you yeah. see one on a, on a couple of days during the winter. So yeah, I mean, I've gone out of my way to see one in my county, <laughs> which was hanging out in a park not far along, not far away from me, uh, with a big flock of Canada geese, like vagrant geese tend to do in the east. Um, the biggest flock I can recall in my state was. Um, I, we had a group of about 20 of them hanging out in the eastern part of the state mm-hmm. uh, for several weeks among the migrant waterfowl. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, North Carolina famously has a lot of migrant tundra, tundra swans and snow geese and things of that nature. And sometimes, you know, a white front of goose will pop down with them. And um, that's the most I've ever seen in one place, though. But whenever I travel back home um, in the holidays, though, it's been some years since I've yep. been able to do that. Uh, we'll, we'll find greater white fronted geese, like sure. in farm ponds, flocks of, you know, a couple dozen or so here and there. Um, and of course, if you get into Kansas, there are tons of them. In fact, it's, it's a good opportunity for me to plug uh, an appearance I'm making <laughs> in oh, a cool. Kansas wildlife festival, uh, in Hayes, Kansas, cool. uh, at the beginning of April, um, fingers crossed, we'll run into some greater white fronted geese flying over, um, there, here and there. 
Hey, I feel the need to make a, a correction um, to something that both you and I are, are guilty of, which is a sort of an east of the Rockies bias. I, yeah. I live just barely oh, east of the Rockies, but yeah, you yeah. know, but the, the population of uh, geese, uh, white-footed geese in, in the West, uh, especially in California, and then that whole question of the tule geese and or goose and whether it's like a separate species, which mm, is a possibility mm-hmm. or something like that. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to get well. Yeah, I mean that's that idea has been floating around there for a while, but I think there's sort of better evidence now than than there used to be. So yes, the um, mid-continent, you know, sort of Mississippi River, just sort of west of the Mississippi River. Con- Congregations of the greater white front of goose are staggering. I, I mean, I think Christmas counts get like a hundred thousand. Yeah, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but but, but, yeah, but there are some Florida. really cool greater white front of geese in the far west as well. So just want to make sure yeah. that the folks in the Great Basin and especially right. the, uh, California, the Pacific Slope, uh, get included in this as well. Yeah, tell so. me about those tule geese. Those are ones that breed in the um, in Canada or in Alaska. Alaska, right? yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm basing this most of all on a uh, presentation I heard at. Um, Western field ornithologist meeting a little while ago. Uh, John Dunn was one of the uh, presenters. I don't remember the other person, but um, no, I, I just, and I, I, sorry, I'm really just, I, I know the, the basic story more than, more, more, yeah, more than anything sure. else. Like I, I, and so I don't know if there's like some, uh, if you'd asked me this six months ago, I might've remembered it, but I, I, <laughs> I, I can't remember if it was like overwhelming new genetic evidence or morphological evidence or something like that. But the, um, the distinctiveness of uh, that, population is um, sufficient to warrant a, a sort of re-examination of its huh. specific status. So. Well, certainly be the, wouldn't be the first time uh, we've looked at goose taxonomics. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a mess. Yep. Uh, well, there's the notorious, <laughs> yeah, notorious matter of the, of course, the cackling goose and the Canada yeah. goose, yeah. but um, yeah, species limits elsewhere. Um, you know, the, the, well, your snow goose or my snow goose too, but the, the snow goose used to be, of course, two species mm-hmm. and it's not anymore. So yeah, goose taxonomy is, um, still in flux i don't feel like uh, birders just like in general have as much interest in like waterfowl taxonomy than they might do among passerines it, 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 do you think do you think that's am i just speaking out of turn there i have no idea it, like a lot of people don't know about those subspecies in uh of, of waterfowl yeah, like um, they might know about the subspecies of i don't know yellow and warbler or, maybe what's or, going on with geese is you know um it's a lot of hunters yeah. and well, and the hunting, no, but the, the whole avicultural, you know, private collections yeah. aspect. I think yeah. that's sort of like we almost like. Um, this is understandable, you know. Sort of, you know, that's not in our lane, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, the, right, the aviculturists right, right. are like so um, up on that literature that we sort of just sort of let them deal with it. Um, certainly, the question of um, even like in, not intergeneric, almost like interfamily level, <laughs> close yeah. to it, you know, hybridization is is you know a fascinating one in um in the waterfowl. Like, how is it like you know that a muscovy and a mallard? I mean, they're so different from each other, you right. know, but can, can produce offspring. And so many, I mean, the mallard it seems is like you know interbred with almost everything. <laughs> and right. um, yeah. yeah, so it's it is it is interesting. There's certainly kind of like with hummingbirds and gulls and some other groups, an awful lot of hybridization. Mm-hmm. going on over there and you know i think that just based on what we call the old you know morphological species concept you know if it looks like a mallard it is a mallard and i yeah. I, I, get, I get that but um i think at some point you and i must have talked about like the whole mallard super species complex question and maybe the status of mexican duck and you know well if mexican duck isn't now it is a species but if it wasn't a species what about an american black duck and, and yeah so forth? So oh yeah, yeah. It, well the, the whole model duck situation where right? the two subspecies of model duck um yeah one of them is more closely related to black duck and the other is more cl- or they're no it's mallard and american black duck are more closely related to each other than the two model duck subspecies is that yeah or something and, like that and, yeah and mexican duck is also well differentiated except for the fact that maybe it, it is the mexican it duck freely in integrates yeah. with mallard well, they all freely right? integrate with each other yeah. it's, a, it's a mess and here in you know and in, in south carolina we have model ducks but mm. they were introduced as game species from the western gulf coast population so they're not the florida model ducks right. they're the so any sort of vagrant model duck that comes into my state, North Carolina, or even anywhere up the coast, could arguably be from this kind of feral, wild now population of model ducks that is actually Western Gulf Coast model ducks. From the, it, it's a mess. Is yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, it's a mess, and of course, there's. And, um, I'm very neutral about what I'm about to say, so I'm not taking sides here. But there's that mm-hmm. whole issue, though, with the sort of the phenomenon of. Not quite wild birds, you know, feral duck pond. People feed them. Yeah, um, I mean yeah. that. The, the, a lot of the ducks have a very long history of, you know, um, human contact, mm-hmm. and you know, species limits have been kind of messed with by by humans, yeah. in many cultures yeah. for a long time. And that may be part of your kind of, you know, mallard versus yellow rumped warbler kind of scenario. Right. There, people I think just that may don't be want to dig too deep on. into it. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Anyway, all right. 
Um, we'll do one more at least. Okay, great. Um, so fun. let's uh, let's hit the magic number generators. Okay. Two sixty back down to the bottom of the list. Yeah. So, but how was the two sixty? So I uh, nut hatches. I don't know. Uh, um. Yeah, it's actually another bird that I saw this morning. Oh, um, Carolina wren. Oh yeah. Yeah, I love Carolina wrens. I actually mentioned my my daughter's heading out to uh, New Jersey today. Carolina wren's another bird that. I think she's seen, but she really wants to meet up with. We we barely get Carolina wrens in in Colorado. They, um, I don't know if they've even ever been documented as breeders, but um, you know they're annual in the far southeastern part of the state, especially sort of where the uh, Arkansas River leaves Colorado and um, heads into Kansas. Um, it's one of those great loudmouth, brassy, colorful, awesome birds of the Southeast. Yeah. Um, I would be very happy for them to just make the nudge 150 miles north of Denver. <laughs> I just, I, we talked about tripartite songs with, um, what were we talking yeah, about? Yeah, I know. It's Tom like, yellow well, throat, well, but yeah, yeah. Tea kettle, tea kettle, keep tea kettle or mediator, mediator, mediator. Could have gotten, so, gotten Kentucky warbler and we've gotten sure, like a whole gamut of, yeah. uh, tripartite confusing songs. Yeah. So, or, 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 Hey, remember, uh, when did you and I talk about Chubb Sisticola? Oh yeah, that was the last time we did this <laughs> that, with the that, Uganda. That, yeah, that, that's like the Carolina wren of Uganda. <laughs> it is, and they act the same way too. <laughs> I know they have like they actually even look like wrens with those the, the, the tails yeah. they cock up and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. That, that, there's like the most random point of all. What do Chubb Sisticola and Carolina wren have in common? And they're like they're the loudmouth tripartite singers of like they're part of the world. But um, I just love that ringing song of the uh, the Carolina wren. Um, the only sort of bit of trivia and it's not even trivia so it's so well known about the carolina wren that i'll mention is that um it's one of the most celebrated examples of a bird that's been moving steadily north for Mm, mm -hmm. about a century now Uh, certainly you know three quarters of a century so you know if you read the really old literature you know it's described as this sort of you know bird of you know southern bottomland forests i know know, now it's like a common bird in new england uh, in, in the dead of winter um as well but yeah, I mean, what can I say about Carolina Wren? Um, yeah, found in all 100 counties. Um, mm. This has been a great random birds for birds that I can hear from my yard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I've had Carolina Wren's nest in my yard underneath my deck. Um, they famously will try to nest in um, my garage if I leave the door open for longer than 15 minutes. Um, I'll probably find a Carolina Wren having stuffed a bunch of branches underneath like an old bike seat or in a box waiting for recycling. Um, They love to nest under barbecue grills. Like they start, um, they start building their nests before people start grilling on their back porches. And so a lot of times you will pull off the cover of your grill ready to, to fire it up for another uh, another summer, and there will be like a giant carol ball of sticks inside yeah. it somewhere late in there where a Carolina wren has uh, has frequently like laid eggs in there. Um, yeah, they are um, they're they're endearing. I'll say that. That uh, hearing birds, that niche of sort of like a trashy, junky, you know, uh, barbecue pit sorts of uh, occurrences <laughs> is um, replaced in much of Colorado by the Buicks wren. Yeah. Uh, so it's yeah. kind of similar looking bird, completely different song. They're actually in different genera. But um, yeah, so often if you just sort of find a junked up old cards often like along the arkansas river or something like that mm-hmm. you know a buick's wren is you know sure, sure to and be a found <laughs> a buick and a buick there you go a different spelling by the way but yeah, yeah so um yeah that's that's sort of the uh, replacement um junkyard bird uh, yeah. for us in, in colorado but the buick's wren just like the carolina wren is i think you use the word endearing it's just such a cool bird for us um in colorado you know, it- it is interesting that you bring up Buick's wren and that the um, the range expansion of the Carolina wren in the east has been mirrored by a range recession yeah. of Buick's wren in the east that used to be a regularly breeding bird in some parts of the of the southeast, particularly in the Appalachians, um, and now has been mostly extirpated for the last three decades or so. Yeah, um, I they're the very uncommon across on the east of the Mississippi River anymore. Yeah, our um, our ABA colleague uh, Greg Neese and I were just talking mm-hmm. about the. Um, almost sort of, uh, you know, extirpated status of, um, the Buick's Wren in, in, um, in Illinois. So it's only mm-hmm. that little kind of knob that sticks out into the, um, the Western part, you know, kind of out into Iowa and, uh, yeah. Northwestern Missouri, uh, Northeastern Missouri, sorry. And, um, they're almost gone from there as well. So yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, it's kind of like withdrawn pretty much like Texas. I mean, it, I mean, I mean, yeah. not that severely, but it's, it's really withdrawn. It's so strange. Like what I don't I have no idea what the reasons could be for this because it's, you know, where it's still 
present yeah. in the you know western third of the of the continent. It's it's quite common. You yeah, know, it's not so a rare bird. For as long as I've been a birder, you know, which is like forty plus years now. I mean, every account of the Buicks wren from the east that I can think of has a statement. You know severely withdrawing or you know, mm-hmm. reduced the numbers for reasons unknown or yeah you know, it's like they, why you know they, <laughs> they 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 just need junk and trash and garbage right and there's plenty of that <laughs> right. and, yeah. and um, you know, shrubs brush you know i mean they, they it seems like there's so much available habitat to them and so, so they're not migratory and they're highly mm-hmm. adaptable they shouldn't be you know susceptible to problems on the wintering grounds or something because their wintering grounds are their breeding grounds more or less so yeah it's weird. yeah I, it, it makes you wonder if it isn't because the habitat has changed across the east in the last few decades you know mm-hmm. we've gone from mostly agriculture to you, you know, know most I mean, forests have grown up yeah. quite a bit in the last um, 40 50 years and um is that pushing Felix right now? And yet, I, I, I mean, have no idea. But but you know, in the in the but, West, you know, they flourish in suburbia. Right, guys, right. You, yeah, you like Carolina suburbs. Yeah. I mean, yeah, why aren't they all over, you know, the thousands of small towns in the east? I mean, there they, there should be plenty of habitat. Yeah, and we've got Carolina wrens, we've got house wrens. Maybe there's no space left for a third wren. Maybe that's yep. the wren limit. Two wrens. That's, that's all it. you can have in one space. Yeah, you mentioned that, but back back to Carolina wren, which was actually the number that we dialed up here. But yeah. um yeah, just another kind of cool fact about the the Carolina wren. So um, it sings antiphonally. So that's when the male and the female, you know, yes. exchange song elements. And that that so-called antiphonal singing is um maybe most celebrated in the, the neotropical wrens. But um, it's long been known in the uh, the Carolina wren, and also a um Colorado biologist Lauren Benedict has been looking at antiphonal singing in lots former, of other birds. Former like, ABA podcast guest. Oh, good. But, but I mean, birds like you would never expect it in like um. Pygmy nuthatch, at least I would never expect it in, and uh, you know, gray vireo. I'm thinking Western examples mm-hmm. right here. But what's neat about the Carolina wren is you can hear it. I mean, you can hear the you know the, yeah. the birds exchanging song elements. Always, and it's, it's, always it's, doing it's that. Yeah, yeah. But um, so if you hear like a Carolina wren song that's just like too complex, that's because it's being sung by two birds, not two by birds. one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they do that. I, I, it's neat I, because that's one of the. It's, it's a very common bird across much of the East, and you can actually hear that all the time. I mean, I hear them. The, the pair that uh, is resonant in my immediate backyard that nests underneath my deck every s- summer. I mean, they they sit on the railing and they do that. Um, you can watch them. Sometimes they'll yeah. sit like within like three feet of each other and just sing back and forth and back and forth. Yep. And then you know something will catch their attention and pff, off they go off because they go. <laughs> every they're just super curious. Yeah. I don't let let. Let's do let's do one more. Yeah, I can do one more. I need to go in about fifteen minutes. So okay, we'll, we'll that'll hey. put, put a we'll put an arbitrary time. Well, That'd not an arbitrary, great, but great. we'll put a time limit on it. It'll be better for us. Uh, one forty nine. Moving back up uh, into the non passerines. Um, you were somewhere toward the end of the. I'll guess it's going to be a hawk or owl. Uh, you're you're actually quite. You're you're not far off. It's a turn. It's Forster's turn. Okay. turn. Ooh, yeah, yeah. The um the classic prairie sterna. Mm-hmm. Uh, wintering bird where I am for the most part, but uh, yeah, not not where you are. Or is yeah, it? I don't think we have a winter record yet. Although the way some of our winter records are going, it may actually show up before too long on a Christmas <laughs> count in the southeastern part of the state. But yeah, so that's probably our most widely encountered, widespread, most just frequently detected turn in yeah. the state. So um, back when I started birding, it was one of the many species in the genus Sterna. Now I think we're not down to just four in the ABA area. So yeah. common foresters, Arctic and Rosie, at least for the, you know, the, 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 I should say, the, the widespread expected Sterna turns. Um, yeah. I mean, if you just out on a, often a rainy or sort of stormy day in spring and there turns, you know, what white things flying around that aren't gulls, chances are it's going to be a, a, a forester's turn. They, they breed in Colorado um, hmm. and they're not particularly common. They're sort of more frequently seen on, on migration. Um, they have behaviors that are usually used for prairie that kind of remind me of black turn. I mean, they often hawk for insects and you'll, they're usually over water, but you know, they're often, you know, sometimes over fields, you know, looking for flying insects as well as for, um, you know, just, they, they can plunge dive and catch fish of course like other terns do as well but um it's a it's a widespread um you know fairly common rarely numerous but you know frequently encountered bird mostly in spring and summer sorry spring and fall in, in colorado yeah i'm uh i'm noticing there's there's a little bit of theme uh with the tripartite songs um it's also birds with masks Oh yeah um, worcester's turn has that kind of classic uh, you know big panda eye mask in the winter yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, very common bird along the coast uh, throughout the cold months, and 
in the migration, you can catch them on lakes and, and reservoirs as they move through back uh, to the Great Plains where they where they breed. Um, yeah, named after, uh, and I, I didn't, if people don't know, the Forster is uh, Johann Reinhold Forster, who is a, uh, a German pastor hmm. who has a turn named after him for some reason. Forster is one of those um, most frequently misspelled bird names. Yeah, Fosters. In the AB- Fosters yeah. and Foresters. I see that so yeah. often. I think the Subaru, Subaru Forester had something to do with the- <laughs> I get them mixed up with the toad, uh, Fowler's toad. Oh, Fowler's, I yeah. sometimes call Forster's toad because of what I'm not thinking. Yeah. Yeah, um, I oh I, I, back to the the appearance of the of the turn. It, um, to me, a Forster's turn, especially in um, spring, is really elegant. I should be careful. There's a mm. bird called the elegant turn, but it, it's <laughs> it's just a really less elegant. Ironically, it, it's a beautiful. I just I, I mean, a stunning bird. It's sort of you often so often Colorado will see it like against the snow capped mountains. It's shimmering and just it's just a beautiful bird. You know, bright orange bill, bright orange feet, a shining black cap, and it makes this awful call that's like ah! <laughs> that's it's, the it's, worst vocalization but the foresters are like really bad <laughs> i mean it's so like loud and vulgar and like just i, I just it's a really a beautiful bird made a sound like that one so um yeah it, it's it there's something very incongruous about seeing this shimmering you know opal white and orange and black and they're so i, I didn't even say this, they're, they're they're so graceful in flight they're very very long-tailed um like all terns, they're long-winged. They're actually not as long-winged as common in Arctic terns, but they, they're so graceful. Yeah. And then they'll just let out a rip that does, does not sound <laughs> like it should come. It sounds like it should come from an ostrich or something like that. But yeah, just a beautiful bird with a really, really harsh call. You know, funnily enough, I'm reading up on here, uh, Johann Reinhold Forster. Um, he, he's, he was German. Uh, he also had family from Scotland, and they were the Lord's Forester. Oh, so see, maybe Forester is not you know quite the mistake that, uh, that one would have. All right. Well, that's that's as good place as any to to, to stop. Um, I'll make a note of these birds, and and next time we'll come back and we'll uh, we'll remember some more remember some more birds. Ted uh, Ted Floyd, Birding Magazine editor. Always a pleasure. Thanks for thanks for making time. Yep. Thanks for having me. We'll do it again some other time. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits like our magazines, discounts to partners, opportunities to travel with us. Get information at aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make this week to Dallas Harrell of Thornhill, Tennessee and Justin Peters of Pekin, Illinois, both of whom joined the ABA noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Technical production is by John Lowry, who was reminded of a Liverpudlian he saw wearing a Capricaley shirt that he described as a scouse grouse blouse. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who spent far too much time on the internet trying to find that shirt on their scouse grouse blouse sprouts. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association, but on Twitter, we are at ABA. When my colleagues told me about their difficulties finding this amazing shirt, uh, I put it on my, my VPN on my browser. I set it to Southeast Asia so I could search a, a wider variety of websites. But my wife cut on and stopped me. She was worried that I might open our Wi-Fi networks to dangerous viruses. So she had a louse, scouse, grouse, blouse, browse, house, spouse doubts. Okay, I got to bounce. Questions, comments, and come to podcast at aviated.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week. <laughs>